Mm-hmm. And good morning, everybody. So we're going to be continuing um, in Galatians this morning, even though it's a new month, and usually I try to do the lesson series on numbers at the beginning of every month. Um, but with our gospel meeting, Lord willing, next week, and having just done Galatians 5, um, it feels appropriate to keep a bit of momentum with Galatians. Again, especially that Galatians and the applications are so rooted in the momentum of principles that the book has been building as we've been going along. And so many New Testament books are like that. Um, It's very proper and very good to do topical studies where, for instance, you know, we look at the fruit of the Spirit and we study different qualities. That's, That's very good. But there is something, I think, very powerful and very special in letting the momentum of a book carry points forward. And I think when we do that, points within books of the Bible have more opportunity for application of wisdom and understanding to be conveyed. And so Galatians is is like that, where so much of the book has been building on principles that these applications really depend on for there to be more meaningful applications that we are learning to make because of discovering those applications by digesting those principles very personally. And Galatians has really challenged me, and I hope it's challenged you to understand the concept of our freedom in Christ so much more tangibly. And I want to pull some of those imperfect illustrations that I've been using to convey that. Um, I'm going to try to, I know it can seem overwhelming, I want to try to bring up three very quickly here by way of introduction. For one, freedom exists within marriage. Um, Think about Galatians 3, or rather... 5, 13 through 15, we're called to freedom, but that freedom is for love, right? Um, We've been granted a united intimacy with God, and it can seem like a burden. And I want you to think about it again. Marriage comes with more responsibility, less personal freedom. You've got to deal with now a lot more hardships when you have to deal with the intimate burdens of the other person. Uh, Marriage is not just this thrill ride. it's, It's hard work, right? Is that slavery or is that freedom when you truly love a person and want to spend your life with them in perfect intimacy? And I think our relationship with God is like that. We've been given freedom not just to do whatever we want to do or to live whatever way we want to do or indulge in anything we want to indulge in. That freedom is rooted in love. And if we love God, the difficulties, the responsibility have context. Second, again, imperfect illustration is physical therapy. Galatians 5, 5 We, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. If somebody has suffered an injury or a disability, is there freedom in physical therapy when recovery is involved? Again, I I know someone who I respect a great deal who suffered a stroke and lost nearly every function that they needed to perform uh, their job and the tasks involved in their life. And in physical therapy, he had to do many painful things, but because of his desire to recover and regain the use of his arms, his fingers, his speaking, he put himself through a great deal of pain because he wanted the freedom to use his body as he had previously, and he he did regain that freedom. And I think we need to think about a relationship with God like that, where if we're in verse 5, realizing that our applications of God's will are based in hope, not the present realization that we're perfect now or we've reached perfection now. Making movement in our faith is going to be painful. It can be very difficult to make applications of God's love 
But it's because it's, it's like God is bringing us forward into a glorious form that is just very different from where we are right now. And so, again, I want to remind you of verse 17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So there's, there's a conflict right now, right? But again, is there freedom through physical therapy? And I'll remind you again that Jason told me that nurses who work in physical therapy, these sweet ladies, are not afraid to hurt you if you're involved in physical therapy because they know this is in your best interest, right? God may push us, Jesus may say some pushy things because he knows it's in our best interest. He's trying to help us see you need to be pushed a bit. And it's not because God's trying to be dominating or Jesus is like your boss at work who wants to ring you for everything you're worth. It's because Jesus knows that God is trying to heal us through his instruction, right? And that's not absent of mercy. It is through grace. Lastly, um, third illustration I want to pull from, um, the TV show Hoarders, um, I don't expect that all of you have seen that, but it's a very interesting TV show where they, uh, they're called usually by somebody who loves a person who's so deep in hoarding that their home is just in absolute disarray. It's just completely cluttered with all sorts of junk. It's dangerous to live there. Oftentimes someone's been hurt and so they've been called because of that or the city has said your house is condemned, you need to move out. And oftentimes with that carries deeply broken relationships where the family who loves this person hoarding literally can't have a relationship with them because of their obsession with their things and their, their home environment. Usually there's like feces under everything, rodents. It's just it's an unsafe environment. So what the show Hoarders does is they get a professional therapist who deals specifically with hoarding to come in and a professional junk removal um, group with lots of people who, who work to clean out the house and they try to work with the person to free them from all of these things that are not only trapping them but destroying these relationships with people who, who love them. After the show is over, there's usually a follow-up and the follow-up is usually that they've gone right back to their habit. One thing I didn't bring up last week when I mentioned that illustration though is the show does provide the hoarder with aftercare therapy. If they accept the therapy, do you know what happens? They're free. It's hard. It's painful. The process of getting all that stuff out is painful. There's usually tears and anger and conflict, but it, it heals. And if they'll listen to the counselor, if they'll try to work with their family, they're free. Even though it's hard, it's freedom. And that freedom is based in reconciling relationships. It's ultimately not about the house, the stuff. It's about the relationships. God is trying to free us in restoration of relationships that may be difficult. We've really got to listen to the counsel of the Lord. We have to deny ourselves and trust that his way works, just like in the hoarder show. There's a lot of resistance. And they can, every episode, they've got to say, you just have to listen. You have to trust that we're helping you, right? Jesus is trying to help us. It's painful. We don't like it, but he's trying to heal relationships, right? So these applications, again, this is about God healing relationships and teaching us of a better way, God's way, of dealing with relationships. I want, I want you to remember again, again, verse 13, the greatest expression of our faith is not that we know the right things, or practice religious activity, the greatest and most important 
expression of real faith is love and specifically love among brethren. When New Testament epistles use the one another instruction, it's talking about love among brethren, especially on a local level, right? The greatest expression of the reality of our faith is not what we know, is not because we participate in religious activity, it is that we love one another. That is the reality of all that Jesus has done. So with that long introduction, we're going to be focused on verses 1 through 5, and we're going to try to just slow down a bit for these applications because I do think that there's a lot to think about with bringing these applications into reality. So chapter 6, and I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 5, and we'll start with thinking through just verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So we're called to restore one another. And I think, again, just to bring up some things, look back at chapter 5 really quick. Verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And so what Paul's getting to is, is with the breakdown of what you believe about God and how you connect with God has come the breaking down of your relationships with one another. And I just want to say this, when, when we have a breakdown of our relationships from one another, it is always a sign of something more serious outside of that relationship. Paul doesn't start the letter saying, look, I know that your relationships are breaking down. You know, you're biting and devouring one another. He starts saying, like, something's led you here, and there's a deeper problem that we need to address that's a lot more fundamental and deep than just how you're treating each other. But by the time we get here, again, I want to emphasize we're, we're dealing with relationships, and when we have a breakdown of relationship, something deeper is problematic that needs to be addressed, and Paul, Paul has worked through that in this letter. And now where we are is Paul is dealing with the opposite. So instead of going in this direction with your relationships, here in opposition to that is how spirit-centered relationships should be in a local church. So what kind of person is called to restore? You know, if anyone is caught in any trespass of any kind, we're called to be restorers of one another. But I really want this to be the center of the point here that a spiritual person is the only kind of person who's really equipped to solve a spiritual problem. A spiritual person is the only person who's equipped to solve a spiritual problem. And I think it's, it's really simple. Chapter 5 has already laid out what a spiritual person is. This isn't just some ambiguous thing. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, this is somebody who is investing in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. They're living by faith. It's, it's not that there's some super Christian or only like an older elderly person who's been living in the faith for many, many years. You know, a younger person can be a spiritual person, but it's simply someone who's not walking by the flesh or thinking in a natural way or living in a worldly-minded way. They're investing in the Spirit. And with this instruction, before we go to Matthew, go back to chapter 4, verse 19. I've, I've emphasized this in application that 
Paul keeps bringing us back to things Jesus said that are so fundamental. Look back at chapter 4, verse 19. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Every application Paul makes, we can trace it back to something Jesus either did or directly taught. And so turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Paul's just really emphasizing things that in Matthew's first sermon that Jesus gives, Jesus taught these things. Jesus taught this application exactly. Now, he uses some different language, but it is the same teaching. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. And I'll try to just briefly here connect the dots a bit. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge that you will not be judged, for in the same way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Obviously, verse 1 and 2 are very misunderstood, um, but I think even among brethren, that there, it can be misunderstood. So verse 1 and 2, I think, is just that we use God's judgment, that I surrender my expectations of people, my demands of people, and my judgment becomes God's judgment. Now, what that does mean is, if there's sin, if there's a problem, God's judgment is that needs to be addressed and confronted, which, again, we're called to restore to those who are in a trespass. So there, there's a problem. But again, it's, it's using God's measure, not my own. It's having God's grace and mercy as the measure and abiding in that measure, not pushing my demands, my expectations on others, um, which ends up becoming, ironically, absent of mercy so often and leaving room for bitterness. Anyway, we use God's judgment. We let God be the judge. We are not the judge. Doesn't mean we don't address problems. It means we do it God's way. Three through five, we seek to restore people in a sense of self-awareness, self-conscientiousness, and self-examination. And the problem of if I have a log in my own eye and I'm not addressing that problem, how can someone trust me if they can see that? How can someone trust me to help them with the speck if they can see that I've got this massive log, right? And can they trust that I'll be gentle? Am I equipped if if I literally, as funny as it is, have a giant log in my eye, can they trust that I'm going to have the kind of delicateness that'll be needed to cause no further injury? no unnecessary injury. So what Jesus is commending here is to restore people in a spirit of gentleness while looking to yourself that you too not be tempted. So again, going back to Galatians 5, not to dwell too long on Matthew 7, I just mean to convey that Paul is instructing them simply to go back to teaching that is much more fundamental than just a new instruction in a letter to a church. It's something that Jesus not only did, but taught himself. So getting back to Galatians chapter 6. Why is it so critical to be spiritual when seeking to restore people? And I think thinking about this maybe helps convey what it means to deal with people in a spiritually centered way. And um, yeah, I I don't mean to make it sound like super intimidating or impossible. But again, I just trust that as you listen, some things can maybe be filtered here. A natural-minded person is not equipped to understand the real nature of a spiritual problem. And by their involvement, they may actually cause more problems 
problems that are entirely unrelated. You had one problem, but now because of your involvement, you've now caused more problems because now there may be a greater relationship problem or different conflict that has nothing to do with the original problem. A natural-minded person, because of their lack of perception and patience, may cause more problems because of their involvement. You know, Jesus calls us ultimately to be peacemakers. And in Matthew 7, you know, again, judge not that you not be judged. What he's saying is we seek to restore people, not condemn them and leave them in condemnation. But it requires gentleness. Somebody who's not spiritually minded may only see the symptoms of a problem rather than understanding the deeper problem at work and how to find that problem and how to help the person suffering the trespass also find the problem themselves, right, and address it. So you think about a doctor, you know, if, if you have cancer, do you want them to just discover the symptoms of your cancer? You know, if you're having like weight loss and, you know, a lot of things are happening in your body that just really seem concerning, do you want them to give you a diet plan to eat healthier when you have stage three cancer lingering inside of you? No, you, you want the doctor to find the deeper problem, the real problem. Spiritually minded person understands that there may be deeper problems at work than just the symptoms, the most visible manifestation. A natural-minded person may not understand the need for diligent prayer, the utility of prayer to resolve spiritual problems, the need to encourage prayer, the, the need to pray with a person and to encourage them into a deeper prayer life as ultimately our spiritual problems start first with our relationship with God and the condition of our relationship with God, right? So it's not just the trespass that needs to be addressed. It's, well, where are you overall in, in your relationship with God? Are you cultivating that relationship? A person who's natural-minded, instead of compassion from the interaction, may gain disgust or disdain for the person who's in a trespass. Um, it's situations that may require persistent compassion and resolved care to address. Um, and they may overpower a person and give quick fix solutions and orders instead of realizing that some problems require a deeper level of patience and a very painful commitment to working together beyond just what a person may need to do on their own. Um, you know, James 1 talks about the need to be slow to speak and slow to anger. Um, a person who is quick to anger is simply not equipped to deal with the gravity of a person's problems that very well may be very emotionally overwhelming to even begin to hear what's really going on and what's happening, right? So spiritual problems don't need quick fixes. Uh, they need patient solutions, and oftentimes that requires serving on a deeper level. Why is the spirit of gentleness so critical in this? And I want you to remember, again, something mentioned last week. Can a surgeon be gentle? And I think absolutely, right? Because a surgeon is trying to make sure they cause no further injury. Paul in Galatians has been very frank, painfully frank. I mean, if you just go back to the beginning of chapter 5, verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. You remember verse 12, I wish those who were troubling you would mutilate themselves. I mean, that's severity. But I'll argue that it's still gentleness. 
because Paul is only saying what is necessary to reveal the severity of the problem, to address the severity of the problem, and to address that this is a severe problem that requires severe solutions, right? So again, a, a, a surgeon out of context of a health problem, wow, cutting someone open, blood everywhere, long recovery, taking things out of a person's body, cutting a part of the body off, I mean, severity. Well, if it's in the context of a need, there's gentleness. And a surgeon is oftentimes using robotic tools to be extremely precise, right? That is gentleness. And so to be gentle is to be like Christ. Jesus confronted problems, and even when he was severe, it was still gentleness. Now here's the thing, though, that gets back to being spiritual. Confronting a problem is very challenging, especially when it's not a quick fix. It's so easy to become angry. It's so easy to become extremely impatient. And this gets to the other quality of gentleness, to be trampled on and yet remain silent. A spiritual person is trying to learn how to pick battles, right? In interactions with people who are totally lost or who are caught in a trespass, I've been in interactions where it's like every single thing a person says is sinful and wrong. And you just have to sit there and think, where do I begin? You know, because just to pick apart everything is just not going to be productive, right? To stop a person after every sentence and overpower them is not going to be productive. And so, you know, you think about Jesus and the cross and being trampled on and yet remaining silent, and what did that accomplish? Everything. It accomplished everything, right? We've got to learn how to be trampled on and yet remain silent. Why is it critical to look to yourself lest you be tempted? Um, I'm not a superhero. Uh, I'm vulnerable. People influence me. And that's, that's the reality is we are all easily influenced. That's, it's just simply the reality of our human condition. We are easily influenced. I'm not a superhero. Relationships are challenging and relationships influence me. And so I'm tempted with different things and that's, that's just the reality. And relationships bring more temptations into my life. And that requires a very studious self-examination. Again, in interacting with people, especially when there's problems and relationship problems, if if somebody's being stubborn and dishonest, it makes me angry. And controlling that anger to instead be gentle and realize what, what anger will accomplish right now will cause unnecessary injury. And to still maintain a focus and resolve is very challenging. Um... This challenges us to elevate our view of people who are in spiritual trouble instead of lowering our view of them. I think there's also a temptation to seek relief afterwards the wrong way. So after an interaction with somebody who's caught in a trespass, there's a temptation to gossip, to think contemptuously about a person, to grow impatient afterwards, you know, and just to dwell on you know, just can't believe that person. And, you know, you just, there's almost like these gears that Satan can begin turning and twisting. And I think the only relief for the person who's trying to restore is prayer. I think if we don't understand how necessary prayer is after interactions, we're just going to be destroyed. You know, interacting with people with problems is extremely challenging. And I think it really requires 
praying afterwards in a really honest way and just bringing things to God. Um, It's very draining. It's very difficult. Again, a spiritual person, they realize that God is the one who's needed, not the world. The world can't give me relief. The world can't help me. The world cannot solve the problems that it is causing, right? Um, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. I think this has a broad application, but I want you to think about it with this specifically. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those for an opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, patient when wronged, trampled on yet silent, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Bearing each other's burdens, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And I want you to remember again, one another is a local church related instruction. He's specifically dealing with our internal relationships with each other here. And I want to start with that um, fulfill the law of Christ statement. Everything Jesus did, everything he did, everything he taught, it all equips us to have the motivation, the endurance and patience, but also just even the capacity of heart to bear each other's burdens. Um, You know, if you remember the principles of love in this, you know, God knows we're weak. This isn't about being the superhero and I've got to solve everybody's problems. Our capacity grows over time. We're very limited, right? But still, we need to think about the importance of bearing one another's burdens. And I just want to remind you again, we've looked at this two other times so far, and I want to turn back there again, that this again is, this, this is Jesus' anthem. I mean, this, this is who he was, and it's who he called his disciples to be. Um, Mark chapter 10, 43 through 45 when the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest among them, you know, just so different than who Jesus is and what he's about. In verse 43, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is just a radical reorientation of why I have relationships, right? And I think a really simple way to think about this, and I don't mean to like pick on anyone, but when people look for a local church to assemble with, a lot of times it's looking for the best place for me. You know, I want to make sure that I'm taken care of, and it's fine in a sense, it's fine. But I mean, when we're thinking about the, the higher principles of our faith and love, it's not about me, it's, it's where, where can I serve God and pour myself out for the sake of others most effectively. You know, and especially in a place where there is sound doctrine being practiced. As this is all just a part of the themes of Galatians, of doctrine, love, and all of that working together. It's not about what I want. It's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus teaches. It's about who he is. It's about what he's done. And if, if that's my focus, again, it just reorients everything about why, why I have relationships with people, and especially the brethren. And another way of saying this that I have on the board, my relationships, as hard as this is, this doesn't mean we can't have joy in our relationships and enjoy each other, but we're not called to have convenient relationships. 
or self-serving relationships. You know, again, it doesn't mean we can't have just really fulfilling friendships with each other, but it, again, it does mean that ultimately what Jesus calls me to is relationships that are not based in the pursuit of my own advantages or my own conveniences, right? And I think this isn't just about what we need to do, but what Paul is getting to, going back to Galatians chapter 6, the law of Christ is not just a law of works as the law of Moses. It's a law based on who God is and what he does and what he promises. And so this is also about, this is about where God invests himself, right? God is invested all of his power, all of his resources. And you just imagine the God of existence who is above everything, who sustains everything, who gives everything, all of his power and resources are invested in this work. And that's very encouraging to me because I think as we are very honest with our limitations and how little we each are able to do compared to what we may wish we could do or what we think we ought to do, we are so dependent on God to act apart from us. And I think what Paul is promising is, here's where grace is. You know, if, if, if God's grace has any interest to you, here it is. Here's where God invests his power, his love, his resources, his care, where he builds people up. This, this is where it is. And burden is a broad term, um, but I do want to put into your mind that, I almost want to broaden your mind of what could be a burden, that it's probably the same thing that makes you hate someone or makes you tired of someone, makes you disappointed in someone, makes you impatient with them, makes you resentful, makes you bitter, or to want to withdraw from a person. That just may be a burden that needs more patience to handle and not grow resentful. Um, I think from Galatians and other places, the, the biggest tragedy we can face is when our relationships begin to break down. If we could just see that the problems that we have, the limitations we have, the lack of wisdom we have, you know, thing, even things like we don't have elders, things happen slowly, imperfectly. We just have to bear with those things. And I think that helps us if we resolve that, treat one another with so much more grace um, and so much more consideration. I think that's a quality of a healthy local church when we, when we get that. Um, a burden might even be a personality I don't like. It might be a sense of humor I don't like. And it's like, if it's, if it's not sinful, it's okay. It's okay to have different people with very different personalities. And part of growth is learning to break down barriers of division that we have freedom to have unity in with Christ. And we're called to bear, not to resolve each other's problems. And I think this is where this protects us from getting overwhelmed. Um, the church here, we've had a lot of burdens in the past year, um, a lot of heavy things, a lot of hard things. And it can be very overwhelming because it's like I just don't have the time. I, you know, I forget about so-and-so, and it's like, man, and then there's this person and, and neglecting this person, and so quickly it's just, it's, it's just crippling and overwhelming. But I just want you to have deep into your mind you know, God's calling us to bear burdens, not, 
not to resolve them or fix them. Again, in the context of the higher principles of Galatians, Jesus' death is a symbol. God knows we're broken. God knows we're limited. We, we are not the superheroes of people's lives. And to presume that we can be is a misassociation of glory. It's an, it's an idol of where the power really is. And so even if it just means trying, um, there's so much value in just trusting God can do so much more. And it just drives us to prayer, just God, work with the littleness of what I have and just the littleness of what I can give, right? So we're not called to solve each other's burdens, just to bear them. Now, this, this is something that I have found very convicting. To bear a burden is not just to care, right? Um, we talked on Wednesday that it's important to develop brotherly affection. And that's important, to care for one another, to like each other, develop family relationships. But I think it can be easy to be content too soon of like, I like you all, I appreciate you all, but that's not the same as bearing a burden. And so this is a call to involvement. And again, just want to be really careful. This doesn't mean we're needing to destroy ourselves and we can never do enough and we can never please God. That's not it. It's just that this is what the cross looks like when it's being realized in a tangible way in our lives, right? Um, Well, so some principles, I think, of bearing each other's burdens. I think we need to be aware of each other's burdens and have the spiritual fortitude to endure that without becoming discouraged, finding more joy in the Lord, and again, a deeper devotion to prayer, a greater dependence on grace. But I think what this means is we need to encourage each other very proactively. The reality is we do have burdens. It's just a matter of communicating, being honest, having better communication with each other. We need to be open to listening. It's hard to bear a burden if someone doesn't want to talk about their burdens. It's a call to openness. We need to listen. We've got to take great care to give time to listening to each other. And um, there's just mercy that's needed. Uh, We need to extend so much mercy to each other that just can't be overstated. You know, Jesus, who is the embodiment of God's full holiness, ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. And you imagine how joyful that was, but how difficult that was, right? And so Jesus came to be a burden bearer among men. He was able to extend mercy to establish relationships that weren't based in convenience. And yet, and yet, Jesus, I think, had the greatest joy a human has ever experienced in this earth. Three through five, I think, is so important. I think these verses here protect us from, again, being destroyed or embittered or resentful or withdrawing with the problems we inevitably confront. You know, I can't say enough that relationships among brethren, they test our hearts. And they're designed by God. They are designed by God to test our hearts. And that's why we need his word. That's why we need his instruction, right? So I'll read verse 3 through 5 again. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. So again, if we don't practice this kind of self-examination, 
I believe we'll lose heart. I think we'll just get discouraged. I think we'll get overwhelmed. And we'll just hit our breaking point, and we will break. And we'll end up being that person who's caught in a trespass who then needs restoration, right? Um, but I think this, this, this is just so critical. So what does it mean to think I'm nothing? I mean, that can sound really discouraging, like, whoa. <laughs> but again, not taken out of the context of the momentum of the letter, to God, the grace he's given us, the love he gives us, is unquestionable. But not because I'm someone impressive. Not because I'm someone who is worthy of honor or should be honored. And again, I want you to think about how this brings us back to the cross. Jesus was overlooked. He was mistreated. He was spit directly in his face and then slapped and then punched and then whipped and then put up on a cross naked, mocked, blasphemed, reviled. And all of his friends who he's put all of his tiresome energy into No one says a thing. This is the cross. So here's the point. If I embrace that I am nothing, if I embrace it in grace, then I'm okay being overlooked. You know, brethren say something to me where it's like, well, that didn't seem very nice. It's like, well, that's okay. You know, I don't deserve to be honored. I'm not looking to be impressive. I don't need someone to flatter me. And it's okay to be neglected. It's okay to fall into the background. You know, I think we are designed to need encouragement. And so I think this is just a self-regulated, self-examining thing, you know, that we just have to realize Jesus was neglected and it's okay for me me to be neglected too. It just makes me more like him and I have to learn to find joy in that because nobody's going to give me the kind of recognition that I need that only God can give me. Nobody can replace the role that Jesus has in giving grace, right? Um, And I think it also equips me to forfeit my own expectations and demands. Um, This is a really challenging thing, but there's a brother that I used to spend a lot of time with who really impacted me a lot in love. And one thing he said one time that just really stuck with me is he said, our expectations are a poison. And what he was saying is they destroy our relationships. You know, when I have expectations of you, and you have to meet my expectations, you have to meet my demands, or I'm upset at you, or I'm embittered at you, or you've disappointed me. His reflection has helped me is that that can really be a poison that ends up corroding and destroying a relationship that otherwise could be thriving. There could be mercy instead of disdain. There could be joy instead of resentment. And there could be grace given instead of withdrawal. Um, So we just have to be really, really careful and very self-aware And I think we all struggle with that. That's very challenging, right? But I think if I understand that God handles his expectations toward me while giving me an incredible degree of freedom and showing me so much mercy, I think that's where verse 4 is going. Each one must examine his own work. And I don't think he's saying, like, take pride in what you do. I mean, um, if you look at the point there with, Still the next slide. Verse 14. Where did this lead Paul? But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so Paul doesn't say, and I'm doing great. Man, I've baptized like 50 people this past week and church is growing. Things, things are great. I think the point of verse 4 is if we really honestly examine our work, not our intentions, not our wishes, not what I could do, it's immediately humbling. 
Not in a self-destructive way. Not where it's like, oh, I just, I'll never be enough. No. Look at verse 14 again. The cross is a symbol of this balance that I am nothing. And yet, wow, how encouraging is it that God loves me, albeit when I was a sinner and broken and an enemy of God, he reconciled me through the death of his son. And if God is for me, who can possibly be against me? This takes us to a place of encouragement, not discouragement. And if I'm examining my own work, honestly, then I can better handle my relationships with others. Because when I realize, like, man, at any moment, God can throw me away like garbage. God could treat me like trash. And yet he's given me every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yet he sustains me. He loves me. That should inherently impact my treatment of others. And so there's a circularness to this with God's grace. And I think there's an importance and contrast to verse 13 in the Jewish teachers. Look at verse 13 again. Those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, so they're not honest about their shortcomings. They're not examining themselves honestly. And they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. And this is kind of like, if you listen to me, that validates me. And this happens sometimes, by the way, with the church where it's like the pride is in the amount of people. And I've studied with preachers of churches that are not sound and they're false teachers. And the reason they're not willing to listen is all the people who are listening to them and the amount of people that sit in the building. And that is not what validates us. It doesn't matter if I help you. It doesn't matter how many people I'm involved with. None of that validates me. What validates me is God his word and his promises. And so the Jewish false teachers just had it fundamentally backwards. Besides keeping the law of Moses and teaching that to be kept for Gentiles as a religious authority, there were much bigger problems at work. And so if we understand grace, I don't need validation from people. This gets back to chapter one. Am I seeking to please men? If I were still seeking to please men, I would no longer be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But also it protects me from feeling validated by others. Again, I think there's a danger of feeling like you're the superhero. And I think as a preacher, that can be a struggle as if I'm studying with people or teaching, it's like, I'm the hero. And that's, that's not the truth. You know, verse three, and if anyone thinks there's something when they're nothing, he deceives himself. Nobody's the superhero here. We are all mutual servants who desperately need God's help. And we are in desperate need of help from one another. So again, these qualities don't lead me to discouragement and an examination that becomes just really disappointing and self-deprecating. All of this just ends up bringing me much more personally into the reality of grace, both in my own attitude with myself, but also in my attitude and treatment of God's people most especially. And that's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. Appreciate your patience just going through a few verses and thinking about these things. I hope this can stimulate you to think about it further. I'm sure there's a lot of things that just really need to be filtered out and just considered on a more personal level. But again, I just hope this stimulates your own thought about it. If you're here this morning and you are not a part of God's kingdom, um, again, there's, there's freedom in obedience to the gospel. Freedom that is beyond expression the hope that God gives to a Christian is so great, it itself motivates these things exceedingly when they are understood. And so the invitation is for you to come forward and obey the gospel this morning while we stand and sing.